showing you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, grapes, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling for couples therapy. Amber, welcome to the I'm Not Late, You're Just Early podcast. I want to start off by saying thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down with us and our listeners to talk about the one topic I love, relationships. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm stoked to stoked to talk to everybody. Yeah, well, I was going to say you must be really busy right now. Have you found that your practice has increased in terms of volume since COVID has started? Or has it always been pretty... You know, relationships a, have always been a big thing. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. A lot. Someone asked me that just yesterday. And I think... Like my, my practice is always busy, so it's hard to tell if it's yeah. more busy. But I think what I have learned from the people that I'm seeing is they had pre-existing problems in their marriages or relationships. And then being at home 24 seven with your partner has exacerbated those and they've, they've come to a head. So most, in most cases it was already a problem, but it could maybe be swept right. under the rug or because you're going to work or you're doing other things, you don't have to deal with it. But then suddenly 24 seven means you have to deal with you it. Can't so ignore I think, the problem. I think yeah, yeah, people are coming now cause they can't ignore it anymore, but yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, I had this exact same conversation too with a cousin the other day, and she said the exact same thing. She's like, the problems have always been there, but they're just like heightened right now. So I want to start off this interview because this is a big buzz word, and I want you to break it down is toxic. Mm. So, toxic relationships, you see it all over social media. And it's like, I I love it because it's it d- definitely defines what relationships I had in my twenties. <laughs> but what what are toxic relationships? Like I would love to hear your breakdown of this. Yeah, that's a good one. You're right. It's a buzzword, and people say things are toxic. That you're like, no, yeah. that's just, that's actually normal part of relationship. It's not toxic. So when, right. I, when I think of toxic, I think of the things that are most indicative of relationship breakdown and or are abusive. So things that are going to be really, really bad. So for example, things that are really bad for relationships are what we call the got for the Gottman's call. These are the the first two predictors of divorce are one what's called a harsh startup. So this is going to be toxic for relationship because it's going to be the first thing that leads to relationship breakdown. And what a harsh startup is, is what it sounds like starting a conversation, harsh words, raised voices, but Mm -hmm. with, with an air of like criticism or contempt. So coming at it, like you left your shoes by the door. You're so lazy where you're insulting your partner um, or, or, making it even worse where you're coming at it from a contemptuous place, which is like, Oh my God, you left your shoes by the door. You are so lazy, a slob, just like your dad. So you're really driving that screwdriver in. That's a pretty toxic pattern. 
The second thing is what they call the four horsemen of the apocalypse because they're so bad for relationships. They are a predictor of relationship breakdown. We all do these from time to time, but when they're the dominant pattern of communication in a relationship, okay. they're going to break it down. They're going to lead to toxicity that eventually is going to cause a leak in that relationship. So there we have criticism, which is part of the harsh startup as well. So that's, you know, insulting or labeling, uh, putting down your pers- partner's characteristics, like their personality, not just describing the behavior. So I could say, oh, I'm so frustrated. You left your shoes by the door. That's not criticism. That's just saying I don't like something. But as soon as I go, you're so lazy, I imply something about yeah. their character. That's that's not going to go over very well. It's going to be a little toxic. Contempt, which we've already talked about. That's really when you're insulting or injuring your partner. So you're so lazy. You're just like your parents are like, God who do you think you are? Like, what are you, a child? So you're really going in there trying to make them feel bad. Then we have defensiveness. So defensiveness happens for two reasons. You get some people that are just defensive. They're always on the defensive. You could say something nicely like, sweetheart, could you move your shoes from the door? They're like, what do you mean? Your shoes are by the door too. Can't you put them away? And you're like, whoa, just, okay. So there's people that are just defensive, but then also defensiveness is a normal response to criticism. So if you start off harshly and you're like, put your shoes away. They're by the door. They're like, what are you talking about? You put your shoes away. They're by the door. So defensiveness can just be your style or it can be response to criticism. And the last one here is stonewalling. So this is when you emotionally shut down, conveying disapproval or displeasure to your partner when you check out from a conversation. So those are, those are pretty toxic because they're lead to relationship breakdown. Now, if we think about things that are really toxic though, is when we get into the abusive scale or spectrum, So basically physical abuse, once you go there, where whether it's a poke, a punch, a shove, not cool, toxic. And if we get to like a verbally abusive state, so we get to verbal abuse, which is contempt, which we've already talked about, but there's other ways we can be contemptuous, like belligerence or belittling or domineering and controlling our partners. So those are some toxic things. And when I think of toxicity, those are the first things that come to mind. Now, there are some things you don't like that your partner does. That's normal. doesn't mean it's toxic. Um, But, you know, some of the things I just mentioned, when I think of toxicity, I think of the things that are emotionally damaging, verbally damaging, physically or emotionally abusive, or the things that are most likely to cause relationship breakdown. Which is so, like, that's so great. I completely agree with all of that. Um, I think what it comes down to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a lot of people that seem to be really addicted to the drama that comes with these types of relationships. Have you noticed that? Uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly relationships that have more uh, toxicity in them, there is a drama factor because typically that... um, big, uh, a lot of criticism or a lot of contempt or a lot of emotional disengagement, usually in these kinds of relationships, people haven't learned safe, secure attachment. They haven't Mm. learned how to be in a consistent, stable, predictable relationship. And so their patterns of behavior that you probably learned in childhood or a prior relationship or even in their current relationship, but usually there's an emotional wound there. And these toxic behavior patterns that we're talking about, we do them because they work. Unfortunately, we do them because they serve a purpose and they, they are a solution. So for example, criticism is a way to try to get needs met. It's a way to try to get someone to hear you, to finally listen. To emotionally shut down or disengage is self-protection. It's a way to, when your nervous system is totally flooded and really worked up, it's a way to calm down. And so we do these things because they, they work and it's one of the only ways to get our needs met. So you use the word like addicted to. And so 
you know, perhaps there's some people that like really like the drama and it serves to light up their brains and then it serves to, for a source of connection, but also they become just such entrenched patterns of behavior that it's the only thing you know how to do. And then what happens for some people, yeah, is it can become feel like a repetitive cycle that they go back to over and over. Because if you don't know how to connect with someone, you don't know how to feel safe with someone actually criticizing, yelling, being insulting at times, it's a plea to be close. It's a plea to pursue connection. And then it's done in a harsh way, which then makes your partner try to get away from you, which then causes emotional distress. And at the end of that snowball of a cycle, eventually you make up and because it's been so scary and so threatening to be pulling apart from each other, when you make up, it feels indescribably wonderful. But then you don't know how to stay in that state of that made up place. You don't know how to stay in that state of it feeling good. So then around we go again. And it becomes that cycle. Yeah. So, and I know this is such a generalized thing because this topic is so complex, but if a couple finds themselves in that like dance, right? What are some things that they can do in order to stop? Like, I know you can't just stop, but to maybe like level it down. So it's not that snowball effect where you keep going round and round and round and round. Yeah. I think the first thing to do is really get aware of what your cycle is. So Sue Johnson in her book, hold me tight goes over identifying your cycle, identifying your dance. And this is something that comes from um, the therapeutic model of motion focused therapy. And it's just to see what, what are your moves? What do you do every time the cycle starts? Do you yell? Do you criticize? Do you poke? Do you prod? Do you follow your partner around? What are your behavioral moves that you do that start the cycle? And then what do they do in response to that? And it's so easy to look at what they do first because they're like, they didn't listen right. to me or oh, <laughs> there they go stonewalling again or whatever it is they're doing. But if you can just pause and yes, it's so much easier to start with them. Think, right. what is your part? Because if you're in a conflict with your partner, you, you play a part too. So maybe you're educating, maybe you're lecturing, maybe you're trying to talk to them on their, on their phone or watching football or they're watching a chick flick. Like maybe your partner's not free and available. And so if you're trying to get their attention when they're like not free to, you're, you're less likely to get a great response. And so just think about what is the behavior you're engaging in? Then what do they do? Then what do you do? And you see the cycle around and around and around you go. So usually couples, no matter what, the topic is they start to engage in the same patterns of behavior over and over and over. And if you can start to see the cycle, when I do that X, they do Y, then I do X, then they do Y and around and around we go. As soon as you can see that, if you can name it, you can begin to catch it in real time and do a redirection. Or you can think, okay, gosh, if my first thing I do is I educate them, well, maybe I need to start conversations a different way. Maybe I need to ask a question. Or maybe I need to say, hey, babe, I've got something on my mind. Would you? Would it be okay with you if I brought it up? Or maybe you need to, I don't know what you do instead of educate, but you need to find something else out to do yeah, whatever your first move is. Yeah. So you have to be very thoughtful. But the first thing to do would be to figure out what are you doing and what could you do differently? So when you're in that space where they've done that same thing, like for the hundredth time, right? And you're like, so pissed. <laughs> How do you, is there a tip that you can give of, to stop and become in that like place of self-awareness rather than jumping on the attack because it can be really difficult to do in real time, right? Oh yeah. And I think like starting off in real time is the worst time to try to start this. Most of my couples will say like, did you do your homework? (laughs) They're like, no, nothing came up. I'm like, "Mm." like trying to do it when something comes up is so hard because 
you're okay. escalated. So what actually happens in a conflict is your nervous system on the inside becomes escalated. Your heart rate's right. going over 100 beats per minute. Your prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking brain at the front, goes offline. So our, basically all you're left with is your reptilian reflexes. And when you're really escalated, you're not going to be like, hmm, yes, I think yeah. I just need some criticism. <laughs> I should probably stop. Once you're lucky, you have like a brief moment where that does happen. You, and like a split second where you're like, oh, gosh. I'm yelling. I could do something different, but you're so mad. Yeah. You're like, no, I'm going to keep going. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, so ahead of time when you're not escalated is the place to begin. So to okay. make a plan ahead of time and even practice your plan, which I know sounds wild to like practice your plan, practice different responding, but our patterns of behavior are so automatic. They're instinctual. We have two brains. We have the automatic brain that is unconscious, instinctual, repetitive, and we have the conscious brain, right. which is slow, labor intensive. And to get something to go from the slow labor intensive, effortful brain to the unconscious brain is practice and repetition, practice and repetition, practice and repetition. So if you truly want to behave differently in those moments of high escalation, you have to practice when you are calm and then work your way up. Like at a smaller incident, you do something different. And then eventually by the time that things are in that place of chaos, hopefully you can do something different, but you have to start at the beginning. It actually takes work. If you want to get to that place where in the crux of it, you're going to do different. You have to start out when you're not in the middle of that heated conflict or it's, it's not going to go well. But I think a big thing is if you wanted to start today, you wanted something to try today would be taking a break. Yeah. A respectful break. Uh. So this is saying I'm overwhelmed. I need 45 minutes okay. to calm down and I'm coming back. And there's a few keys mm -hmm. there. It's taking long enough time for your nervous system to calm down, which in most cases is about 45 minutes. Okay. Say you're coming back. Because people take the break and they just go, they just walk out the door, they emotionally disengage and their partner's left hanging. And then, you know, a lot of times their partners let them take a break. So yeah. you want to think about how can you respectfully do that, communicate you're coming back and then actually come back when you said you were going to. <laughs> so that's one thing people can try, but a lot of people resist the idea of taking breaks for many great reasons. But that's that's one thing you could do today if you notice you're in it and you don't want to be hurtful you don't want to keep the same pattern going you could implement some healthy breaks so you said people are resistant to taking breaks now i mean a break isn't like we're breaking up but a break in the fight right like yeah. i'm taking like you said 45 minutes and you find people are resistant to taking that hour yes. off yes very oh, resistant why is that why is that? Do you know? Well, I think there's a lot of people. So I think in culture, popular culture, we're taught like never mm -hmm. go to bed mad, talk things out, that kind right. of mentality. And so it becomes a myth. Like you should just be able to stay and talk. Except mm -hmm. what people don't realize a popular culture doesn't let us know is that when our nervous systems are really escalated, we can't talk. And there right. is gender differences between how men and women can talk and process emotions. Um, that also aren't talked about. Um, many times men are misappropriately labeled emotionally in insecure or emotionally unavailable. In some cases yeah. that is true, but it's also not true in all cases. Sometimes very emotionally mature and healthy men just don't have the same um, level of comfort with emotions and don't go as high or as low or don't regulate as quickly as females do. And the research shows us men's nervous systems actually take longer to recover from an emotionally difficult conversation with their partner than do women's. Um, so for many, for many people, there is a lot of myths 
around what taking a break means, like talk things out or never go to bed angry, those kinds of things. And it really interferes with thinking, oh, a break would be a really healthy thing to do right now. Additionally, um, oh, I had another thought. What was my other thought? Oh yeah, the other reason that breaks are really hard is a lot of the people who are having really escalated fights are doing so because they are protecting a core attachment need. That need could be to be heard, to feel understood, to feel seen, to feel special. And these core attachment needs, when they're not met, they can make us feel abandoned, emotionally deprived. They can make us feel abused. They can make us feel excluded, rejected. And those feelings are so powerful because all we want to do is belong to our partner. We just want to feel safe and loved. And so if your partner says you need a break, it can be terrifying. It can feel like you're being abandoned. It can feel like you're being rejected. It can feel like you're being ignored. And those emotions get so strong and so powerful that they re, um, re-engage that cycle. Because a lot of the big behaviors that we'll see, like yelling or screaming or name calling or insults or criticism, those are a misguided attempt in many cases to restore connection. So when your partner says, I need a break and you feel abandoned, then you just go at it again to get the connection because the thought of them leaving is, is incredibly excruciating and can feel incredibly overwhelming. So those are some of the reasons that people resist breaks. So say one person, cause I think that's a great um, thing that you mentioned, the difference between men and women, cause it's so true, right? We all handle, and, and just in general, people handle conflicts so differently. So if one individual in the partnership needs that space, but then the other one feels like gutted when they ask for it, how can you create that dialogue to find that happy medium? Would it be the person that's a little bit more anxious says, when you pull away or you take that break, it makes me feel like this or like, how do you, how do you get there? Yeah. I think again, a conversation to start having when you're not escalated because when you're escalated, it's really hard to do that in a reasonable way. But if you can say what you just said, that's called a repair. If you can do that, great. Do it. That would be so awesome. It's it's easy when you're not fighting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a conversation to begin when you're not in the heat of the moment, because in the heat of the moment, it's so hard to do. But yeah, if you could. So sometimes what I do is I get people to write that on like cue cards that they practice statements like that. Okay. And then they have like a couple key phrases that they can say in the moment. And then maybe their partner could say, okay, I can sit next to you, but I need us to go on our phones for 45 minutes. I won't leave but I can't talk to you. So there are ways that you could compromise on staying together, but also taking a break. So it could be, okay, let's watch a show. Okay. Let's both read a book or, okay, let's both stay in the same room. We're just not going to talk. So there are ways you can do that. You just have to find the language and the words to talk about it in a way that is appropriate and reasonable. Um, You said something about the gender differences. Yeah, because a lot of times, yeah, yeah. well, no, I was just saying it's a really good point because the way men handle conflict can be a lot different than women. I I notice like a lot of women, we just want to talk about things, talk, 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 and then get it out of the way. And then we never have to talk about it again, Mm -hmm. whereas men process things a lot different. So um, I was just saying, how do you, how do you get there? How do you ask for that space when the other person is dying to hold on? Right. But you were saying to start doing it before the fight actually happens. Yeah. So to start having those conversations about how you do breaks. And also if your partner is someone that needs the breaker or does emotionally disengage, you could ask them, what are ways that I could behave differently to help you stay engaged? 
Mm. What are, how could I show up to help you be part of the conversation? Okay. That's a great one. Yeah. Cause it makes them feel like they're included in, in the, in the conversation, right? Around the fighting. Yeah. Um, I saw something on your Instagram this morning that I thought was so interesting and it was the top things that couples fight about and the way that you fight about things is a predictor of divorce. So I want to talk about that because I had a point written down of how to fight fairly and I think they kind of tie hand in hand. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, fighting fair is super hard to do and also very (laughs) important to do and it, it takes some skills. So the top four reason, the top four more heated fights that couples get in. I mean, couples can fight about so many things, but anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending on how your conflict is going and start fighting about like which Starbucks kind of coffee is better. However, that isn't the one of the top reasons. (laughs) That is not the top reasons. Couple fight is they fight heated fights, heated fights. The top reasons for heated fights are communication, how they communicate, parenting, finances and sex. Those are the most typically heated conversation topics. There's many other topics that are very challenging for couples and polarizing like um, in-laws, house cleaning. Oh yeah, that's a good one. I've heard a lot of people fighting about their in-laws lately. (laughs) So so there's a lot of reasons that people engage in conflicts. And uh, and then, you know, it's not just the topic itself. That is indicative of okay. relationship breakdown. It's how you talk about it. So within every problem, there's always at least two problems, the actual problem and then how you talk about the problem mm-hmm. and how you talk about okay. the problem is a big deal because a lot of people, what they do when they're talking about the problems is they engage in some of those uh, more toxic traits that uh, that we have already discussed. So they use harsh startup or they use criticism or they use contempt or they use defensiveness, they use stonewalling. And it's really hard to have a productive conversation about those really hard to handle topics when you're being critical and you're defending. And so the best thing that we can do when we are even having a hard conversation is treating your partner like they're someone you love, beginning, middle and end. Talking to your partner with respect, beginning, middle and end, even if you don't like mm. what they're saying, yeah, which is so hard to do because these topics that we fight about a lot, they matter to us. We care, we have deep beliefs and values. And so they can become polarizing topics. We can become deeply entrenched in our views and we just like want to fight because we don't feel heard. But the more you can think about treating your partner like that person you love and remembering that you love them the whole way through the conversation, yeah, the easier it's going to be to get to a place of actual resolution rather than just battling it out. Right. So in ways to fight fair, would you say like no name calling, like, you know, no escalating your voice? Like, is there certain things that people can do to keep in mind in order to fight fair? Yeah. So I think when you're fighting fair, there certainly are some things you can do to keep in mind. Certainly name calling would, would not be helpful if as soon as you call someone a name, that's that's usually a yeah, high predictor that the conversation <laughs> isn't gonna go well. It's really hard to be like, oh, you think I'm an asshole. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Like, I totally can see where you're coming from. Oh, you think I'm lazy? Yeah. No problem. I see like I see where yeah. you're coming from. You're right, I am lazy. 
<laughs> right? If, if you call someone a name, they're not going to get behind and validate you. They're not going to hear where you're coming from. Yeah. Like later, they might be like, oh, yeah, okay, they have a point. Like maybe I was. But in the heat of the moment, if you call someone a slob or you tell them you're like, you don't care about me, you don't care about anything, you're just insensitive. Yeah. They're not going to come around and be like, oh, you're right, I am being insensitive. That's just, yeah, that's they're just, less inclined to meet you halfway. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not going to come around. So you have to think about when you're fighting, what is the outcome you want? Do you just want to insult them and have them not get on board with you? Or do you actually yeah. want them to get on board with you? And if you want them to get on board with you, you do have to be very mindful of what you are saying or how you bring these things up. If, if let's imagine you don't feel cared about and you say, you're insensitive, you just don't even care about me. Like you yeah. probably want them to go, no, I do care about you and whatnot, but you just call them some name. You attack their character. They're going to be like, I'm not going to validate you. Get How away. do I validate that? Yeah. So instead you want to be like, I don't know. You want to start soft. So the antidote to being harsh is soft. So I feel about what, so I feel about what are the facts I need making it a fair request. So the three F's feelings, facts, fair requests. And so, you know, I'm feeling hurt when you are on your phone and I'm talking. I just, it seems like you're not interested in me. What I need is when, when we're chatting for you to put your phone away and give me your full attention. So it's, oh, it's easier good. to hear a request like that. Now in the heat of a moment, that's very hard to do without some practice, yeah. but outside of the heat of the moment, if you practice that, those three F's, feelings, facts, fair requests, it's easier for your partner to follow along and, and, and engage with you in a receptive way. So that's one thing, if you want to fight fair, is be very mindful of talking about your feelings, the facts, fair requests, rather than making them guess. If you're like, you don't even care, you never pay attention to me, they're like, what am I supposed to be following right now? Am I supposed yeah. to pay attention to that I don't care? Am I supposed to be paying attention to that you don't care about me and what am I supposed to do about it? I don't know. So giving yeah. them the roadmap and having it make sense. The other thing to think about when fighting fair is to know that everything you think isn't a fact. So when oh. we are fighting and our emotions are escalated, we have a lot of strong, really polarizing thoughts. So for example, you might think you're so selfish or right. such a jerk, or you don't even care about me, or you always do whatever that thing is. You always stay out late and don't come home when you say so, or you never call me when you say you're going to. These always are, are never statements. So, but we have, whenever we're in conflict, is we have exaggerated extreme emotions because we're escalated, which means we are going to have thoughts that feel like facts in the moment, but they're not facts. They are thoughts born out of a highly emotional state. And if you calm down, those thoughts probably won't be so extreme or exaggerated. These are called mind traps. And whenever we get stuck in these extreme or exaggerated mind traps, we know that they are coming to light because of an aroused emotional state. So when people are fighting fair, they also have to wrap their minds around, don't believe everything you think just because it feels true doesn't mean it is true. So don't act on everything you think in the heat of the moment because you know, once you calm down, and this probably happened, you probably said something in the heat of the moment, you're like, I'm right. Uh, uh, yeah. And then you calm down and you're like, ooh, that was a little unfair. Yeah, you're like, ooh, yeah. okay, I suck. Yeah. yeah. So you just yeah, want to like, kind of recognize that even though you're real fired up, like that's where the breaks are helpful because you just want to pause and be like, mm, 
if I wasn't yourself, so fired yeah. up right now, would that would that be accurate? And so people that are fighting fair have that awareness that just because they're thinking it doesn't necessarily mm. make it true. It makes it a thought that you're having in the heat of the moment because your body is so physiologically aroused. Right. But it's not necessarily true. A true portrayal of what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And the last I thing- love that you say that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the last thing you really think about for fighting fair is asking for what you need. A lot of people oh. don't ask. They just think their partner should know. You should know what I need. And if you are so lucky, you have a partner that gets it right. Some of the time. But your partner, if they knew what you needed, they really knew they would do it. They wouldn't do it. Yeah. Like most of our partners love us. If you're with someone, they love you. They want to be with you. They want you to be happy. But we forget that in the heat of these moments. And they're not doing something most of the time out of malice. They're doing it because they're absent-minded. They're doing it because they it just didn't occur to them. So if you want your needs met, respectfully ask for what you need. I made this mistake just a couple weeks ago. I asked my husband for something. I asked him, he agreed. And in my head, I ask you once, that means you're gonna do it. You're, you yeah. will now follow through. In his head, he agreed, but in his head, I asked him once and then I would remind him on every occasion he was to do the thing. Now, as you can see, we had two very different expectations about what it meant to ask and say yes. Mine was then he should just know every time his was, I would then remind him every time. Naturally, we got into a fight about it. But to an extent, I wish I didn't have to ask him every time. However, I would stand a much better chance of having my needs met if I asked him every time and and have being with him now for six and a half years, if I go track our history, when I ask nicely, like, <laughs> sweetheart, could we please do this thing? Yeah, yeah like, um, you got to add in some, what is the saying? You attract more bees with sugar, oh, with honey than you do with vinegar. Yeah. yeah, it's so true. So if I'm to say, sweetheart, can you help me with blah, 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 or babe, would you mind doing X, Y, Z for me? He, he responds so much better than I want. I'm like, can you do this thing? And he's yeah. like, you know, so. I guess, yeah. So making couples that fight fair, recognize they have to make those fair requests. They have to ask for what they need in in kind, respectful ways, even though it sucks to have to ask for what you need. But the more you ask for what you need, also the more your partner figures out what you need. And then more often you actually get your needs met. I love that last point because, and I'm sure you can agree or disagree with this, is especially when you've been married for a long time, I hear a lot of people say, like, how do you, if you don't know by now, you'll never know, right? It's because they've been with them for so long, but you're, it's probably not a fair statement, right? Because we're always learning about each other. And so do you just tell couples at that point, just be clear with what you need the way that you did with your husband? Yeah. Like... You know, if they don't know by now, they'll never know. Like, actually, that's a very true, true point. Like, they'll never know. You're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So they're never going to know. So that means you have a couple choices. You can be resentful at them for the rest of your relationship, which, gosh, if we're going to live till 80 or 90 these days, that could be a really long time to be mad. Or you can just accept, okay, yeah, I wish they knew. But they don't. I don't. And you got to remember, like, we grow up in different families, different beliefs, different values, different expectations. We ingrain patterns of behavior into the way we show up in the world. And although they might intellectually know what you need on, like, if they were to sit down and be like, "Mm, yes, 
it doesn't mean it comes natural to them. It doesn't mean it, they have an easy way where that feels comfortable to execute. It could still go against all of their conditioning, not because they don't love you, not because they don't care, not because they don't know. It's just not natural for them. Like I know I shouldn't drink more than two cups of coffee a day, but yet I find myself at the coffee pot going for the third Sometimes yeah. a fourth. I don't know. Yeah. And so just because I know something is good for me, and I know that this is myself, I'm having a battle with myself about the coffee. Yeah. Doesn't mean I act in accordance to what I have agreed with myself internally I should do. And our partners are the same. They have their own thoughts, beliefs, values, challenges they're up against. So many times they on an intellectual level, yes. They could probably figure it out but it's still not natural for them. So we are going to run a better chance of having our needs met when we ask. And then if we are so lucky, eventually, eventually <laughs> they will figure it out. It'll Hopefully. become more natural. Yeah. Once it's, what's well, the practice thing, like you were saying, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, cause you said a key word that I love is resentment. And I think that's where a lot of things build up. So if you're in a relationship where there is a lot of resentment because you've been walking down these same patterns for so long and eventually, you know, you start to resent each other for not meeting each other's needs. How do you unpack that so that you can start creating some more healthier habits? Because I know when I've talked to certain people, it was like, well, why do I want to try at this point? Because they've been doing this for so long. So why should I even bother trying? So how do you meet that partner who's a little bit more resentful so that you can start creating healthier habits together? It's a hard one. I mean, you have to both be willing to make some changes and you can't make anyone change. And I think what happens over time is like a wound. So initially, if I have a cut in my arm, my arm will get cut. And if I don't clean it out, an infection can start to grow. And sometimes if we're so lucky, the body just naturally cleans out. The infection and it heals anyway. So sometimes that naturally happens in our couple relationship. Something happens, we don't intentionally fix it, but it just heals, it mm. cleans itself out, it heals okay. anyway. But let's imagine I have that same cut and it hurts, and then we go down the same path before it's healed. I cut it again, and every time I cut it again, I run the risk of more infection. And so eventually I have this infected pussy wound that hasn't been healed up properly in my arm. At some point, maybe even it grows over, maybe it does close up but there's still infection underneath. So if I poke it, anytime I poke it, it's actually going to hurt because there's infection. And so the same thing happens in our, in our relationship. We have this infection that because it already hurts, if you touch it, it hurts. And so how couples heal is the same way you're going to heal an infected wound. You have to cut it open and you have to take out all the pus and the nasty stuff and you clean it out so you can stitch it back up, which if you ever had an infected wound, the cleaning out process is incredibly painful. So long-standing resentments go the same way. Very often you have to go back in and have some very hard conversations to process those emotions so that you can stop hanging on to them. And then when that wound is poked, it doesn't hurt so bad. But you have to be very careful in those conversations because if those conversations go poorly or they don't resolve anything, you just add more infection to your wound. So a lot of times when couples end up in therapy, for example, with me, they end up having to process past difficult, painful resentments or emotions because they struggle to do it themselves. So 
yeah, if you can stitch it up nicely and heal it, that's one of the things that is helpful in healing resentments. And the other thing to remember as well is if you have a partner and they are different than you and they've had the same freaking things that they do that drive you nuts since basically the day you met, it's never changed. They've just always been that way. Chances are they're not going to change. They might change a little, but not a lot. Like change is actually very hard. So they might change a little and you have some choices. You need to remember that every partner comes with a set of problems. Everyone does. We all come with stuff. And choosing a partner is choosing your problems. And so if it's not this person and their problems, you're gonna pick another partner and they're gonna have problems they're gonna deal with. So sometimes when you look at your partner, you can get really worked up and irritated. But one of the things to think about is how can you accept the things you cannot change? How can you find peace with someone who isn't flawless? They're totally flawed. And how can you look at, I don't know, the bright side of some of those negative qualities so that when they do that thing, you're not so irritated. This is called a flip-flop factor sometimes. So what it is is someone's worst quality is usually often their best quality. So let's imagine you have a partner who like really loves spreadsheets and budgeting and feels like, you know, they really want to be accountable to every cent and penny. But maybe you are someone that's like, eh, money in, yeah. money out, like, don't care, I'll pay it off. I make good money, never kept a budget in your life. If you have a partner who does keep those spreadsheets, it can feel controlling, it can feel suffocated, it can feel too meticulous. And so maybe when you're in a fight, you're like, you're so controlling with money. And I'm not talking about people who are abusing people financially here. I'm just talking about someone who keeps a lot of spreadsheets yeah. and reference. So you might think <laughs> in the moment that they're being controlling and they're like too down to every line. All they care about is their stupid spreadsheets, which is the negative quality of that. But if you flip that over, what's the positive quality? They're probably very practical, conscientious, yeah, organized, yeah. organized, a great planner. And so if you have a quality or characteristic about your partner where you're like, what's the bright side? How can you look that in a more favorable light? Because yeah. usually in most cases, someone's best quality that you love about them that actually drew you to them is also gonna be one of the things that like infuriates you about them. So like, I'm not saying do this it's for a, yeah. years cause that's a whole different spectrum. But in the realm of like, normal even if you don't like it then yeah the bright side it's so funny you say that because the other day a girlfriend just told me she's like i heard this sentence and, and it's what you loved when you first met the person is when you're on the brink of like separation or like things are really bad is the thing you're gonna hate <laughs> so it plays in exactly what you just said yeah yeah yeah. I love that. So how does insecurity play a factor in that resentment and in relationships? Like, how do you navigate insecurity? Well, I mean, we all have insecurity in different ways. Yeah. Like, what do you mean, though? Can you give me an example? Yeah. So I know if you're really insecure about something and it's like really driving a wedge in your relationship, like, how do you overcome that? For, so, for example, um, someone I was talking to, they were really insecure that their partner was following certain female accounts on social media. Yeah. Now, I mean, these weren't just, like, women we know. It's, like, you know, Instagram models or whatever, like, people we'd never, ever talk to in real life. But the insecurity that 
their partner was following these types of accounts really played a huge impact in what they were fighting about. Yeah. So it's like, how do you navigate that insecurity? Like if you come to your partner and you say, listen, I don't like that you're following these Instagram models or whatever it may be. And they're like, what's the problem? Like, it's just an account online. I don't see what the big deal is. Like, I'm never going to talk to them in real life. Like, how do you, how do you navigate your insecurity? How do you know, is this even something that I should be mad about? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. And there's lots of answers for this one, but I think there's, there's a number (laughs) of different ways, right? So choosing a partner is choosing a set of problems. And if you come in, so for example, if you don't, if you know, this person doesn't like the Instagram models and that is just a no fly for them. It's an insecurity that they are, we all have deal breakers, right? So that person can say to their partner, like, look, I know for you, this is nothing. For me, it feels like a betrayal. For me, it feels intolerable. For me, it crosses the line of what I am comfortable with. And loving me means also loving my insecurity. I mean, that partner could throw it back at them as well, but at some point we all do have deal breakers. And for some people, things like following Instagram models is, is a deal breaker because it feels like a betrayal. It feels like you are seeking pleasure, sexual satisfaction. You're crossing the lines of what feels appropriate to me. So it's a way you can cause a betrayal and breach trust for other people. They don't mind because they have a different, um, a different belief system around those models. Maybe they can get on board with, yeah, okay, you're never going to meet them in real life. And the boundary becomes a in real life, but maybe they do put down some ground rules around it. Like, you know, maybe they say things like, be a boundary violation if you ever chatted with them or if it was someone we actually knew. So when it comes to these insecurities, you can work on them together for it to feel safer. Mm. But some partners are going to say, no, I'm never, that, that will never be acceptable to me. And so we all come to relationships with different beliefs and values and expectations around opposite gender friendships or opposite gender voyeurism or opposite gender following. We all have different beliefs and values. And sometimes those are just hard conversations for couples to navigate. How do we handle that in our relationship? Because sometimes the answer actually is you do, if you, if you are in that relationship, you do everything to make your partner feel safe. And if them feeling safe means don't follow the Instagram models, you don't. But if maybe them feeling safe also means let's have conversations about it. I just want to know who you're looking at, or you can look at whoever you want. As long as you're telling me every day you love me, it's just going to be different for each relationship. But ultimately, if you think about a healthy, long-standing relationship, which has a high degree of trust, your actions are demonstrating trustworthiness. Trustworthiness is the dimension of saying, I'm putting your, I'm putting your best interests first. I'm thinking of us as a team. And so you're going to work with that person's insecurities in a way that demonstrates you're on the same team. Now let's imagine though, that that same person who doesn't like the Instagram models, isn't going to leave that person. That person's not going to change. Then you got to think about it differently. You got to say, okay, I love this person. This is one of those problems that they have in this relationship that isn't going to change. And that person would have to think about coping how do they cope with those fears? What can they tell themselves? Like they love me, they're not with them. We have an agreed upon boundary that is just Instagram models and it's not gonna go beyond that. I am still safe. You'd have to do some really hard thinking about how you handle those situations that can be very triggering and how you cope with those things in 
reasonable ways given that relationship. But I think this this issue in particular is really complicated because I think there's no cut and dry answer. For some people, it's learning to cope with it, and for other mm-hmm. people, it's it's not happening. So it's it's a very complicated answer. It's whatever your boundaries are. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the last thing I want to talk about with you, because I think this is really big, especially right now. And at the beginning of the interview, we were saying with the COVID and how people are locked in together and it's really heightening the pre-existing relationship problems. Is there some tips that you can give if couples are locked in the house together right now and you can't really do much and they're finding they're really getting into like heated arguments and it's everything's getting on their nerves, right? Things are super heightened. What are some things that they can do to manage the fighting and the differences when you're together all the time? Yeah, this is a great question. So I like to think of it like this. Relationships are like a bank account. Um, You have to put a lot of money in the account to handle the withdrawals Mm -hmm. coming out of the account. So conflicts in relationships or withdrawals or taking money out. Being home together all the time in different ways might be taking money out. So what that means is to manage the conflict, we have to put money in the account. And so Mm -hmm. in day-to-day interactions, 20 positives give you... uh, like a, the ratio of 20 positives to one negative give you a neutral. So you need to put in okay. a lot more positives to be able to handle a withdrawal. Even in conflict conversations, you need a ratio of five positives for every one negative. So you need to be putting in a lot, a lot, a lot into that bank account. So when, when we are together all the time and we're fighting, 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 what happens is we've taken out too many withdrawals from the bank account. We have no money in it. So because the bank account has no money, Couples fight, 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 and they can't get out of that cycle. So one of the things when you're staying at home you need to think about is even though you're frustrated, even though you're stuck together, how can you put money in your relationship bank account? So those could be small things. So I have a, I have a free guide called Six Small Things Successful and, Lovely, Successful and Loving Couples Do. And it goes over little actions every week that you can take to create a more successful relationship. So one of the things, for example, might be using words of appreciation, sharing words of fondness, like praise or compliments, five minutes, five days a week of sharing good things. And what those do is it puts money in the bank account. So then let's imagine my partner starts every day saying, sweetheart, you look great. When for the last 13 months in lockdown, they've been saying nothing. I'll say, right. well, my partner thinks I look great. Feels good. Maybe yeah. I'll, maybe I'll like make them a coffee today. And then, cause they made a coffee, you made them a coffee. And then I thought, oh, that was nice. Maybe I'll, Move on. I don't know. And so you just start engaging in more positive behaviors and the positive behaviors become a ripple effect and you're putting more money in the account. Whereas each negative interaction becomes more negative. Like you said nothing again. You don't care about me. So then you accuse them of not caring about you. And then because you're yelling at them, then they stonewall you. So like, you know, each positive behavior leads to more positive behavior. Another thing is just engaging in like kind, loving touch. So that could be holding hands massaging, kissing, cuddling, could be having sex, but doesn't have to be five minutes a day, five days a week, because what it does is it releases bonding hormone, oxytocin, and gets us connecting. So we feel more positive feelings for your partner. You feel more positive feelings. It's easier to be around them. Um, and then another one of these things in the, in the six small things, successful and loving couples do, um, is setting aside time to talk about the problems so that problems mm. don't have to come up 
all the time. They don't have to infiltrate everything. But instead you're saying, okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna allot this time, we're gonna time block it out, or we know we're both gonna come to it and have adequate time to address our problems so that the rest of our time can be more fun, it can be more easy, it can be more graceful. And then we will use that time. And then if you have a problem throughout the week, you just write it down. And oh, okay. It. So it's like carving out some time there. But, and then I think it's important to also make sure you're dating. Do something together. I don't care if it's a date walk, go for a picnic. Like being creative. Yeah. You have it's to get creative, to- yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also important to find time, interesting ways to be apart from each other too, whether it's one person goes for a walk and the other stays home or you go for a, you, you know, you, you're doing some things apart as well because we're just not used to being together all so the time, together, yeah. which is hard. Um, if, yeah. if people have children, I found that's another big one is like figuring out how you're going to parent, how you're going to manage work. And so those are a lot of conversations. And I would encourage you rather than just doing them in the heat of the moment, like scheduling some time to have those conversations the week before, how are we going to try splitting our work time with, with parenting time this week? So I think there's just a lot of hurdles that you have to overcome. But for a lot of these things, I suggest blocking out some time to have conversations for the week ahead. Make sure you're engaging in positive things, date, and have some time apart as well. Um, but what I do have is I have a guide. It's called Six Small Things Successful and Loving Couples Do. It's free. So if you go to www.emberrelationshippsychology.com slash free guides, um, you'll see that Six Small Things Successful and Loving Couples Do. And it can give you some ideas for little ways to build in, like ways to connect. And then adapting them for your unique relationship and just making sure you're putting enough money in the account so that when something goes wrong, you don't go into negative, you don't go into overdraft, that there's still money in the account to keep your relationship overly positive. And then just finding that that delicate balance between togetherness time, alone time, still dating time, and then time to actually address issues, which is really hard to do. But, you know, I think people often protest at the idea of like having to schedule time in their calendars for all these things. Yeah. But like, look at your, look at your calendars. What do you do that you don't schedule as an adult? I'm curious. Like if people actually get stuff done that they're not scheduling, cool. And, and I think I encourage you to remember back to the beginning of your relationship. While it just felt so easy and natural and graceful, yeah. I bet you planned dates. I bet you made plans yeah. to hang out on Thursday or Saturday night and you put it in your calendars and you even made a reservation. You even maybe bought a new outfit and you dressed up nice and you Yeah, showered. you got excited. <laughs> and so you have to approach a long-term relationship with some of the things that worked at the beginning of the relationship. Like you yeah, did schedule so time together. You did. And it worked because heck you're together. So think about what did you do at the beginning that was successful and replicate some of that and bring it to now. So those are some of my thoughts for what to do in that lockdown, lockdown life. The lockdown life is a hard life. I think the biggest thing you're, from what I'm taking away from all this is really being intentional with like everything that you're doing in order to create like a little bit more of a healthier environment in your relationships. Yeah. You do have to be fairly intentional, unfortunately. I know. (laughs) I'm going to put the link to that guide and your website in the description box for this podcast. I think that's like so great. I see that you have a ton of free resources as well on your Instagram. So I'm going to link your Instagram page. Amber, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast. 
on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com. Thank you.